Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Thursday, the 3rd of August. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, where we're one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore. We're also on Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for Peter Lewis's Money Talk. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the US has been stripped of its top-tier sovereign credit rating by Fitch Ratings. The credit ratings agency downgraded the US to AA plus from AAA, a ranking the nation has held at Fitch since at least 1994. Fitch said on Tuesday its downgrade reflected expected fiscal deterioration over the next three years and a high and growing general government debt burden. Global stock markets sank following the downgrade. In the US, the S&P 500 saw its biggest daily drop in more than three months. Hong Kong's Hang Seng slumped 2.5%. Long-dated Treasury yields jumped to their highest in nine months. And the US dollar surged against Asian currencies. And the Chinese yuan dropped below 7.20 renminbi in offshore markets. U.S. private sector employment increased more than expected in July due to an uptick in job growth in leisure and hospitality. Private businesses in the U.S. added 324,000 jobs in July, way above forecasts of 189,000 and continuing to point to a tight labour market. South Korea's inflation rate has hit its lowest level in more than two years. The consumer price index in South Korea increased 2.3% in July from a year ago, easing for the sixth consecutive month to the lowest since June 2021 and supporting the central bank's move to pause its tightening cycle. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities in Seoul. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Peter U.S. stock markets joined a global sell-off on Wednesday after Fitch Ratings downgraded Washington's top-tier sovereign debt rating. The S&P 500 pulled back 1.4% to close at 4,513, its biggest daily drop in more than three months. The Dow tumbled 348 points, or 1%, to finish at 35,283. The Nasdaq Composite registered its worst day since February, shedding 2.2% to end at 13,973. The Nasdaq Golden Dragon China Index of US-listed Chinese stocks sank 4.2% after China proposed stringent limits on smartphone use for miners. JD.com and Baidu both fell more than 4% in US trading. Combined with the news that the US Treasury planned to increase the size of its bond sales to help cover the deficit, Fitch's move was enough to push yields on 10-year Treasuries up 4 basis points to 4.08%. They hit 4.13% earlier in the session, their highest since early November, before easing slightly. Yields at the short end of the curve fell, with the two-year yield down two basis points at 4.89%, helping the yield curve steepen to July highs. The US dollar index rose 0.4%, tracking long-term Treasury yields higher, and supported by the much stronger-than-expected ADP jobs data. The Japanese yen initially strengthened against the US dollar after rating agency Fitch cut the US credit rating. The yen, long considered a haven currency, rose half a percent in Asian trading yesterday, but it has since then given back those gains to trade flat at 143.4 against the greenback. 
The Australian dollar weakened 1.1% to trade at 1.5292 against the US dollar, and the New Zealand dollar slid 1.2%. The Korean won was off 1.1% at 1298.11. The yuan fell a third of a percent in offshore markets, breaking through the key level of 7.20 RMB, and it was last trading at 7.20 third against the dollar. Investors sold Asian equities on Wednesday as markets reacted to Fitch Ratings' decision to downgrade the US credit rating from double from AAA to AA+. Hong Kong stocks, which have been largely correlated with the yuan recently, fell as the Chinese currency weakened. The Hang Seng Index shed 494 points, or 2.5%, to 19,517. That's after hitting its highest level in nearly three months on Monday. The Tech Index tumbled 3.3%, and the Hang Seng Financial Sub-Index fell by 2.4%, after the PBOC said that it will guide commercial banks to adjust mortgage rates lower and trim down payment ratios to support the ailing property sector. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite slipped 0.9% to 3,262, and traders are now awaiting Kaishin Services PMI data for July later today, after readings for the manufacturing sector showed contraction. Equity markets, futures markets are pointing to further falls for Hong Kong stocks at the open. The Hang Seng is projected to start the day 200 points lower. That's about 1%. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at Peter Lewis Money Talk. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Thursday morning guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, our regular Thursday morning commentator. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us is Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities over in Seoul, South Korea. Morning to you, Peter. Hello, good morning. Now, as you heard there, the U.S. has been stripped of its top-tier sovereign credit rating by Fitch Ratings. The credit ratings agency downgraded the U.S. to AA plus from AAA. That's a ranking the nation has held at Fitch since 1994. Fitch on Tuesday said its downgrade reflected expected fiscal deterioration over the next three years and a high and growing general government debt burden. Fitch also noticed an erosion of governance over the past two decades that it said has manifested in repeated debt limit standoffs and last-minute resolutions. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called the downgrade arbitrary. She said it was based on outdated data from the period 2018 to 2020. And she said in a statement, Treasury securities remain the world's preeminent safe and liquid asset, and the American economy is fundamentally strong. Um, Andrew, let me start with you um, on this. Tell me, first of all, what, how, how significant is this? Is this a great big fat nothing burger or is it something we should be worried about and care about? Okay, let's start quite passionately here. My 22 years as a professor of economics and 32 years in investment banking have never disabused me of people using completely stupid and meaningless ratios. The ratio of deficit, or for that matter, Uh, debt to GDP is dividing apples with bananas. GDP has a time dimension. It is the income created over a period of a month or of a year, and the size of the debt has no time dimension. So if I told you that my income is 100 and my mortgage is 1,000, thereby giving you a 0.10 or a 10 times as big, this tells you absolutely nothing how well I can fund my mortgage. Nobody, and I repeat that, 
I'm sticking my neck out here, Peter, because I have yet to see this either from IMF or from that matter from the Treasury Department or for that matter from any of the rating authorities of a ratio between the amount of money spent in funding, in servicing the debt divided by the debt. They don't do that. So, Andrew, okay, I, that's I, the meaningful. So, Andrew, are you saying so here that, that sorry, I, I, sorry, let me finish. So, this business of uh, of downgrading the United States because it's hit 113 or 114 of GDP is completely meaningless. Okay, they should be going and do their homework. So, you're, you're saying that Fitch has got this wrong, um, and presumably completely that and utterly. If if they were my students, they will fail their exams. Yeah, because they're quoting quite specifically as one of the reasons for the downgrade that that debt ratio that you say is meaningless uh, is going to go up to about 114%, I think they said it was in 2025. So they're saying using that as one specific reason why they have done this um, downgrade. They should, they should be, frankly, they should be fired. I'm absolutely appalled by the ignorance of people. Peter, this has nothing to do with opinion. Okay, it's like telling you that uh, lung cancer can be treated by aspirin. No, it can't. Mm. Okay, why? Because aspirin is not designed to treat lung cancer. So ratios of something that has a time dimension and something that hasn't is meaningless. Okay, so even if Fitch have got this wrong, the very fact is they have downgraded uh, the US sovereign debt rating by one notch. Is it something we should be concerned about? Absolutely not, because it's based on meaningless data. And also, incidentally, S&P did the same thing back in the 1990s. I don't know how many times since the year 2000, actually since year 1900, I'll try that again, 1990, the number of times, I think it has been two or three times, the United States has been downgraded, and it's still alive and kicking. Okay. Okay. So, Peter, let's get your thoughts on this. Andrew quite clearly there thinks Fitch has got it wrong. It's based it on a misunderstanding of the data and that this is a great big fat nothing burger that we shouldn't worry about. What do you think? Um, I think there's probably two aspects of this news. Uh, first is that not just the US, but the most part of the world you see uh, with the populist uh, policies emerging. Uh, governments all over the world are going through deficits, and government debt rising, uh, to me, is a global trend. Uh, so U.S. is not alone in that sense. So um, I do agree with uh, uh, one part of Andrew's comment that uh, it is meaningless in the sense that U.S. is not the only one uh, following this trend. So to pick on U.S. alone seems to be uh, uh, disproportionate. A uh, second point I want to make is that uh, the, the trend that we're going to see into the future uh, with inflation being sticky and not uh, resolved anytime soon, uh, governments will have to use fiscal uh, spending as a way to uh, ease the uh, growth pressure that's declined. And second, widening of the income amongst the wealthy and the working So I think, I think the, the global trend of fiscal spending rising uh, and therefore government debt rising, whether it's relative measure or absolute measure, is going to continue to go up. Uh, uh, and I guess, uh, uh, again, the, uh, the important part is that U.S. is not alone. And to be honest, in this type of environment, uh, to think that U.S. is going to lose its... Uh, uh, the pristine uh, sovereign rating to another country. Um, I don't see that happening either. Mm. 
Well, to go to Andrew's point, then he's saying that um, you know that the issue is not the debt to GDP ratio; it's how affordable that debt is, and and can the country afford to pay for it? So the answer to that must surely be, of course, in the US case, it can. Um, it can yeah. afford that debt. It, I mean, it can print uh, government bonds to fund it. I mean, it's it's borrowing in its own currency, isn't it? So of course, it's affordable for the US. So in in that sense, does this downgrade um, not make sense? Um, I think the credit rating agencies have business. Uh, they want to draw a lot of attention and they want to remain relevant. Mm. Uh, and this action seems to be something that's to, to show that they're uh, on top of the changing trends in the world. Uh, but, you know, I, again, I fail to see. Uh, I think in this type of uh, environment, deteriorating uh, government uh, debt, I think... Uh, uh, U.S. Uh, bonds are going to be more popular, not less. Mm. Well, ha- Andrew, how do we explain the market reaction here? You both seem to be in agreement that Fitch have got this wrong, um, that this ought to be something that we're worried about because the U.S. can afford its debt. But nevertheless, um, long-dated treasuries sold off. The yields jumped uh, to a multi-month um, high there. What, what, is this going to? Is this likely to cause people to sell treasuries? I didn't think people bought treasuries because of their credit rating. So presumably, the sell-off well, doesn't make sense either. Yeah, you know, Peter. Here we go. Another thing, and I'm afraid I cannot. I cannot sound as if I'm absolutely right and everybody's absolutely wrong. I am simply puzzled and hugely concerned about factual things, not opinion. I'm not telling you that inflation is going to be up by 3% and everybody believes it's 5 and I think I'm right. These are purely factual things. US dollar strengthened. Hello? Strengthened? If, in fact, the United States is likely to default, you should not be holding US dollars. <laughs> and guess what? People piled into US dollars. Yep. Oh, come on. It doesn't you make know, sense, it, does it, 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 this market it is, reaction? It's completely, either, either it's ignorance, which I suspect, or it is complete childlessness. Okay, uh, you know, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Mm. So on one hand, uh, treasury sell off rightly, because these are the ones that are likely to be defaulted. And on the other hand, people, instead of selling US dollars, selling US treasuries, and then using the dollars to buy anything out the Mongolian lev, anything, okay, they buy, they carry on holding US dollars. Well, mm. you know. Yep, so how... They reach... They re- yeah. So, so, Peter, how, how do we explain this market reaction? Um, obviously, investors sold off long-dated treasuries. I suppose that makes sense if you believe that they're going to default. But why would you buy the US dollar? Um, again, I think it's uh, um, relative. Uh, if you believe that US is uh, uh, looking structurally weaker and vulnerable, uh, then where do you go to uh, no, it's, uh, you got, if you sell something, for most part, you replace it with a purchase of something else. And I find it difficult to see China, uh, any part of Europe, as being a, a reasonable uh, replacement, an alternative. Uh, and I think a uh, second point about the market sell-off, the, at least the equities, uh, I think it's due for a correction. And, you know, uh, we've been uh, watching this market uh, melt up. Uh, well, without a real fundamental backing, at least over the past uh, a month or two, uh, perhaps this was a perfect excuse to take profit. Mm. I mean, and also, this is August, isn't it? Strange things happen to markets in August. We've seen that many times before. That's right. 
So, so and you know what Mark Twain? You know what Mark Twain said? Strange things happens in August. The other months in which strange things happens is September, October, November, December, January, February. <laughs> yes, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, Andrew, the time. Let, let's take it as a, I mean, obviously Fitch have done this, um, regardless of whether we think it's right or wrong. They have done this, but isn't the timing of this also rather odd? Because if you look at their reasons for doing it, you would have thought, well, first of all, they should have done it a couple of few years ago when the Trump tax cuts were passed, which then sort of really cut into the US revenue base. They could have done it when just before Congress suspended the debt ceiling earlier on this year, when all these negotiations were going on over increasing the debt limit, but they didn't do it then either. And then suddenly out of the blue, uh, on the what, on the 1st of August, um, they, they cut the rating. The, the timing is odd, isn't it? Yeah, I'll tell you what, and I loved Peter's explanation. I will give it a slightly different nuance. They got up, there was nothing good on television on Monday, and they said, how about dark rain in the United States? <laughs> hey, good idea, let's go and do it. Seriously, it would have been as stupid as that. Okay. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, what it does is it leaves basically U.S. government debt now with the, the same rating as, say, Apple bonds, um, you know, and presumably, um, unlike uh, unlike Apple, the, the, US, uh, the U.S. government debt has got the U.S. Treasury standing behind it. So it doesn't really make a lot yeah, of sense, yeah, yeah. does it? And then, Peter, people with, with me that they are very long on the tooth and huge backward memories, I'll go back in the year 08 and I will say, <laughs> ratings. Okay, let me, I'll sit my grandchildren on my knees and I'll tell you, let me tell you some horror stories about ratings, how they can get it big time wrong. Okay, so never mind. Mm. Peter, if we go back um, to 2011, and I did this just before the show, when S&P actually cut uh, the US credit rating, um, the S&P 500 then, it fell about 15% in about a month. Um, high yield spreads, they jumped about 350 basis points. The, the VIX jumped uh, to about 45 um, as well at the same time. Now, obviously, there were things going on there as well uh, at the same time. But is there a possibility, do you think, that we could see the same sort of reaction this time uh, to this credit rating downgrade? No, I think... Uh, uh I do remember 2011, as you say, had a lot of stuff going on. I think uh, uh, soon after that, we the Europe got into trouble. Um, so uh, this time around, um, S&P downgrade could be an excuse for a sell-off, as I mentioned earlier. But uh, um, the markets could fall not because of the downgrade, but because of the surrounding circumstances. Um, and at the moment, uh, we do have... Uh, uh, a market that's melt, uh, uh, rallied, probably uh, overly pricing in the uh, declining of inflation and probably overestimating the economic recovery of the U.S. Uh, for the next month. So it's, in a way, priced in, to me, a uh, price for perfection mm. that U.S. has uh, achieved its uh, soft landing already and the inflation is under control. Uh, and that uh, leaves very little room for negative news. So I think uh, uh, short to medium correction is due. Uh, and S&P downgrade is a good excuse, but it's not because of the downgrade. Mm. It's uh, uh, 
other other factors. This was just the the trigger. But if do you think um, though the U.S. has avoided a recession? I mean, if we look at the data, um, it looks pretty strong, doesn't it? The jobs market is holding up pretty well, as we saw from the ADP um, data uh, earlier today. Which means that really, as long as people have got paychecks coming in, as long as they're not losing their jobs, um, they've still got money to spend, and they're going to go out and spend it. And and that ought to theoretically help the U.S. avoid recession. So, do you think the Fed has pulled it off? Uh, that's uh, that's an <laughs> impossible question to uh, uh, answer. Uh, I think uh, the U.S. economy has surprised everybody in its resilience. Uh, the rates uh, that have been uh, most rapid hikes uh, is not uh, leading to the recession that a lot of investors uh, uh, expected. Hmm. I think uh, uh, the consensus seems to be forming uh, that uh, the recession, if it does come, will happen later uh, and it will be shallow. And so I think the focus for us, is rather than just saying, is the recession coming and when is it? I, I focus on what type of recession, and that type of recession earlier this year was supposed to be big, deep, and painful. Mm. Now, a uh, recession that people are expecting is shallow and manageable uh, uh, that can be countered uh, with a rake. Mm. Andrew, what, what are your thoughts then? I mean, is this really just a trigger for other things because you know u.s markets have been a bit on a bit of a tear this year aren't they and then by all sorts of valuations all sort of metrics they're pretty stretched do you agree with um, what what peter was saying that um you know that a lot of this is down to the belief that uh, the u.s has avoided a recession you know it would have been nice if i could disagree with peter because that would add a little bit of frisson to your to, to, to your money call you know two economies fighting each other good god god help <laughs> Okay. Uh, but I'm afraid I can't, because Peter has his own definition of what's a recession, and I'm afraid I'm incredibly naive. I'm sticking to the meaningless, equally meaningless, two back-to-back negative quarters of GDP growth. Now, is this likely to happen in the United States? And then <laughs> my answer is, this is very unlikely. And do I have any other form of recession in mind? No, because it's going to be completely individual. In other words, what's a recession for me? Perhaps we go from 2% to a 1.8% for a couple of quarters and then back to 2%. Isn't a recession? Well, that's my own definition of recession. Mm. Okay, I'm, I'm afraid it has to be a little bit, a little bit concrete, because otherwise we talk at completely diametrical opposite ends. Mm. You know, and the, poor, and the poor investors are simply getting inflation-style Andrew Ferris and inflation-style Peter Kim, and they're both equally good or bad, but they acknowledge a recession, okay, for better or worse, is two negative quarters of GDP growth. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody tells us if this is likely or not. And uh, looking at the numbers, I think it is highly unlikely. Mm. Well, look, look, you're in Europe at the moment. You're, you're in London, I think. This, the scenario in Europe is, is completely different, isn't it, from the US? Because there, Germany is in a recession already. The UK is fighting inflation above 8%. So it clearly there hasn't brought inflation down in the way that the US is. What do you think about the outlook uh, for, for Europe? Uh, <laughs> you, that's, the other, that's the other problem. You know, I don't want to avoid things, but... Europe isn't just Germany, okay? It is, it is the rest of the economies, and God bless it, Greece. 
my own native land is doing extremely well. Mm. Who should bother about that? Because I've forgotten, I think it's less than 10% of the European Union. So in other words, looking only at Germany, yeah, it doesn't look good. And look only at the UK, but UK is not part of the European Union. Mm. UK is UK. Okay, it's a separate thing. So uh, bundling everything together, uh, you, in European Union, the key issue is still very high rate of inflation. And then if we pass to Japan, <laughs> they don't have high inflation enough. Okay, you go to the, the diametrically opposite, and in the case of China, or in the case of Hong Kong, inflation is well, well below 1%. Actually, in, in China's right now, it's 0%. Mm. Okay, well, um, Peter, I, I do want to continue bundling things together. I want to ask you about um, Asia. We've had uh, a lot of PMI surveys uh, released this week. They were rather depressing in most of the cases, weren't they? Because it seems to be showing that uh, demand, domestic demand, global orders, all slumping at the start of this quarter. We've had 11 PMI surveys released this week now. Seven out of the 11 uh, showed manufacturing in contraction. That's in China, Japan, South Korea, Singapore. Paul, Malaysia, Taiwan and Vietnam all contracting on the manufacturing side. Only India, Indonesia, Thailand and the Philippines pointed to um, expansion. Um, I know this is bundling a lot of different countries together and I want to ask you specifically about South Korea in a moment. But overall, it does seem like, um, as I suppose would be expected, Asia is being hit by the China slowdown. Yeah, well... Um you know, uh, we've been talking a lot about this uh, deglobalization, uh, but most of that uh, term has been focused on trade. Uh, uh, I think uh, we should now expand that deglobalization trend into financial markets uh, as well as the underlying economy because uh, you see that the U.S. is doing well. And in the past, U.S. used to be a pretty good uh, barometer for the rest of the world, uh, and that's not the case anymore. Uh, U.S. is standing alone through its policies. It wants to stand alone by itself uh, and really uh, disregard uh, its leadership that it used to have. Uh, in Asia, obviously, China, the growth driver over the past 20 years, China is now uh, has its own internal problems and it's turning inward. So I think the uh, dispersion of the PMIs is uh, uh, probably only the beginning of the different economies uh, setting on different policy, both monetary and fiscal, uh, as well as trade. Uh, and that uh, it's almost like every country now has to fight for itself, uh, no longer uh, synchronized with the U.S. And what about um, and what about South Korea in particular? Obviously, very dependent upon exports. Exports dropped the most in over three years, sank what sixteen and a half percent to a uh, to a three month low. What's the outlook for for where you are there in South Korea? So, uh, following on the previous point, uh, China is South Korea's biggest export destination. Uh, but over the past five years, uh, U.S. Uh, exports have uh, grown uh, and China has fallen. Uh, just last month, uh, U.S. for the first time about uh, 15 years uh, has surpassed China as uh, uh, Korea's export destination. Mm. So we have a uh, different structure changes going on. Uh, and uh, again, uh, uh, the key message here is that China as a growth uh, driver and as an export destination is declining. Uh, so uh, it's already reflected in the political uh, uh, landscape uh, that the U.S. and China has engaged in. Mm. 
Andrew, I, I know we're bundling again lots of things together here across um, Asia, but nevertheless, in general, these PMI data that we've seen this week on the manufacturing side, anyway, we've got the services PMI data all due to come um, yet, which might paint a different picture. But on the manufacturing side, basically, manufacturing is in recession now in many countries around the world, isn't it? Uh, it is. And in the case of China, as, as Peter was observing, you know, we always treat China as the major, huge, dominant exporter. Everything is made in China, forgetting that China is simultaneously possibly the second biggest importer of everything in the world. <laughs> so, you know, if exports from China tend to decelerate, imports into mm. China will also, they have to decelerate because the ratio of exports to imports in terms of, uh, let's say, the value added of imports to exports in China still remains quite, uh, quite high. A lot of Chinese exports consists of imports, starting, of course, with, uh, with, uh, with microchips and electronic equipment. Uh, it's, it is a complex issue, but basically it's very, very simple. If the Chinese economy is slowing down, so do its inputs, and therefore so do its exports. Or for that matter, so do its exports, and therefore so do its inputs. Accepting certain things, such as raw material, all right, and oil and iron ore and coal, that are fundamental in the production of energy, and that, of course, is not just necessarily connected to exports and imports, but also, of course, to pure domestic consumption. So, leaving that aside, yes, I don't see anything that surprises me, okay, mm -hmm. as far as the relationship, as Peter was explaining, okay, the relationship of China becoming progressively less an export destination, at least in this part of the cycle. And at the same time, United States, despite the fact of uh, uh, rattle saving, okay, um, sorry, sabers uh, rattling, <laughs> that was a nice spoonerism, okay, uh, <laughs> it, it involves just that. Mm. But then China needs a new model, doesn't it, really? Because all the usual tools that it uses or has used in the past uh, to get out of this are not going to work this time around. Well, they, they have recognized that by emphasizing something that it was always known. Oh, for God's sakes. And that was that the economy of China was never primarily export-driven, net export-driven. It was driven primarily by investment and consumption. Now, investment is, is the, the bad boy in the picture here, both because of its inefficiency and its progressive decrease in adding value-added and therefore in adding basis points in China's GDP and the growing importance of consumer. And then, of course, the structure of consumer expenditure in China has also changed quite dramatically because of COVID. So it is not a matter of China changing its model because the model of China was never there. Remember, the Chinese piled into investment, the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. Okay, and now they are piling much less into investment. And the exports was very important, but they also knew what everybody else knew, but never really pointed out that exports was of third position in additions to GDP compared to investment and to consumption. And now it is not investment that doesn't work anymore. Okay, lower productivity and it is the structure of consumption. And that is what they are trying to change. I'm not quite sure that this is a change of model, but it is a change in the structure of the same model.
Okay. I hope I hope I'm not too incoherent at one thirty in the morning in London. Yes. <laughs> no, that's very uh, very coherent. And um, Peter, I want to switch back to South Korea because I want to ask you something about exports there. Obviously, when we when we think about South Korea traditionally and, and its exports, we think of electronics, uh, we think of cars, but it seems to have discovered a new export recently, which is its cultural exports. Things like K-pop, movies, TV shows, starting to appear all over the world. A big market for them now um, in the US as well. How big, um, uh, uh, how significant is this becoming for the Korean economy? Um, it's certainly um, taking a lot of global attention, which is obviously very positive. Uh, you know, the traditional reputation of uh, Korean uh, industries have been, you know, very uh, disciplined, uh, manufacturing uh, focused, and industrious workforce, right? Uh, so the new image for Korea is that uh, it's uh, soft goods, uh, very uh, 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 entertainment setting. Uh, this is very positive. Uh, unfortunately, the size of the cultural export is kind of a low base. I mean, it's only a few billion dollars. Uh, and most of the cultural exports, at least content-wise, is still dominated by online gaming rather than the, the flashy uh, K-pop, uh, dramas, movies. Still a, a, a small ticket uh, type of a bit, uh, transactions compared to, you know, shipbuilding, steel, autos, and electronics. Mm. Uh, but again, I mean, you know, uh, I think it's a natural evolution of South Korea being a developed economy more and more, uh, that it's, uh, you know, unlike China, we're uh, approaching $30,000 per GDP per capita. Uh, and it's a developed economy doing developed things. So it's very positive. Uh, and I think uh, the uh, portrayal of Koreans on the global stage has uh, become uh, uh, very different from what we're used to seeing from 10 years ago, right? Yeah. Okay, so. I have, uh, Peter, I have it actually, I'm talking to, to Peter Kim, I'm having it on very reliable sources that Korea is prepared in a Korean Barbie. Be afraid, be very afraid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to check with you on that source, but uh, I'm interested. Yeah, <laughs> I am not being serious. Okay, I, 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 sorry. I could I could spend half an hour explaining the amazing both econo-political uh, consequences of the phenomenon of Barbie. I mean, never mind. Okay. Peter, be, uh, Peter, Peter Lewis, shut me up, please. Okay. <laughs> it'll be, it'll be, I look forward to your, one of your reports on, uh, on the South Korean Barbie coming out soon then. All right. <laughs> we'll have to leave it there. Thank you both very much. It's getting late on over you, Andrew, over in Europe. So thank you for staying up for us. That's Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and also Peter Kim, who's Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities over in Seoul. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and David Friedland, Managing Director of Asia Pacific at Interactive Brokers. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Staten Partners. Bye for now. Money Talk.